I can now jump into the audience and give you all a big kiss. The women and the men, I'll, kiss. I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men down there. I won't love it, but I'll kiss them. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This will not stand this aggression against the Kuwait. You didn't build that. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. You smell what Barack is cooking. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Whiskey that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. Government is the problem. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You think? And my vice president has shot someone. You're listening to the Oil and Gas Geopolitics Podcast. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the po- politics in this podcast and out of the energy industry. If you want to learn more about what the Empowerment Alliance is fighting for or help support the work they're doing, visit TOGGN.org. Again, that is Tango, Echo, Alpha, Oscar, Golf, Golf, November.org. And there will be a link in the show notes below. And I can tell you these guys are incredibly passionate about promoting America's energy independence. I hope you'll check them out, sign up for their newsletter, and try and help them fight to keep America energy independent. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. So grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. So, mm, that's good. Tonight we've got a, um, a good breakfast blend going and uh, for, for recording at 9.30 at night, that's always appropriate. Tonight we're going to talk about an organization that is sucking the very lifeblood out of our nation. An organization that provides less and less and less for shittier and shittier and shittier performance, and all at the expense of we the people. It's an organization whose leadership is not only questionable, but frankly forgetting exactly who the hell they work for and what their job is supposed to be. Okay, that's enough about the NFL. So, Instead, let's talk about the United States and the looming 2023 deficit, debt ceiling, and budget. Because once again, we've managed to hit that debt ceiling, and we are barreling towards a fiscal cliff like a drunken frat boy who uh, thinks he's still invincible. All right. So, for the two of you listening to this that don't know, what is the difference between the deficit and the national debt? Well, the deficit is the difference between what the U.S. government brings in for revenue and what its expenses are. And for the record, we typically run on a deficit and have historically for a really, really wicked long time. And we'll talk more about that here in a few minutes. Uh, the national debt is the amount of money that we, the United States, owe to people out there somewhere. Now, here's the thing. Does this affect if we shut down the government again, if we do all these things? Is that going to have an impact on the oil and gas industry? Well, the obvious answer is yes. And depending upon how long that shutdown goes for is going to depend on how big of an impact it has. It's obviously going to have massive economic ripple effects across the globe, especially for those trying to receive capital if the United States gets downgraded again. You'll recall back in 2011, 2012, we actually got downgraded from AAA credit in this country to AA plus credit, which uh, still sounds pretty good, and it is good, but it was a major, major blow for the S&P to knock our credit down uh, after we were in the midst of uh, chilling budget negotiations less than a decade ago. Here we are looking at yet another one of these circumstances. So... As always, let's dive into this and see just what we're dealing with, how bad it really is, and what can be done from here. So we're going to start off. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the national debt. So where are we at right now? Well, where we're at is $31.4 trillion of debt. Now, to put it one way, you could say that it's equivalent to $31.4 trillion. To put it another way... That is the equivalent of one metric fuck ton of money. 
that is a staggering amount of national debt. Now, our national debt is undeniably massive, and um, how did it get there? Well, decade-long foreign wars, multiple stimulus packages, infrastructure, welfare, and everything else, including the kitchen sink, and the way that our federal government is going, that does not look to be slowing down anytime soon. And for the past few decades, the Republicans especially have seemed really, really outraged by it. Uh, now, the Republicans like to often tout that they're the responsible party, consistently trying to rein in the out-of-control government spending that the Democrats do. And that the Democrats, frankly, just don't give a shit and like to recklessly throw money at anything that moves, like they're me on a trip in Vegas. Uh, there's actually a funny uh, Johnny Carson snippet with Reagan on it where he talks about, uh, you know, well, no, the exact quote here, I think the answer to, curling inf to curing inflation is a balanced budget. Balancing the budget is like protecting your virtue. You have to learn when to say no. Now, I love Reagan, great guy and all that, but... Let's be honest, Reagan got us our first trillion dollars of debt, and not once in the eight years was he in office did he actually have a balanced budget. Um, in fact, he was a few hundred billion dollars off each year. Uh, so I like the spirit of what he's saying, uh, but it doesn't really jive with what actually happened. So let's kind of take an objective look at this and see what we're actually dealing with and why Neither of these parties seem to be able to actually manage a checkbook in a proper way like every other human being on the planet seems to have to. Okay, so getting into it here, uh, how did – and maybe we'll just kind of start with Reagan here. You've got uh, Reagan in office in the time of the Cold War, and he has a number of massive tax cuts, and he also massively increased military spending. He increased military spending by about 35%. Now, I've said it literally on this program before that the only way you win a Cold War is to outspend your opponent. It's kind of like divorce in that way, um, and that's exactly what Reagan did. So as much as I can bust his chops – on the fact that he got us our first trade in debt, he did manage to successfully win the uh, the Cold War. He got us there. He he bankrupted our opponents and got us to move along, and it was all very good and well. That being said, he did establish a precedent, which is haunting us to this day, regardless of who the president is, regardless of who controls Congress, and that is just spend money. It's fine. We'll figure it out later. So moving right along, let's talk about that government spending, right? So when it comes to government spending, the last time that we had a balanced budget or a surplus was Bill Clinton in 1998 through 1990, or excuse me, 1998 through 2001. Uh, we had a four-year run, Bill Clinton's second term, of having a budget surplus. That's nice. That's fantastic. Before that, when was the last time we had a, uh, a budget surplus? Go ahead. I'll give you guys a second to think about that. When do you think we had a budget surplus prior to that? Any ideas? You got that Wikipedia page open, doing a little search. I'll just tell you, the last time we had a budget surplus, a, a, uh, a balanced budget prior to that, was Lyndon B. Johnson in 1969. So let me put that in perspective for you. For the last 54 years, we have been running on a deficit for 49 of those years. 49 years out of 54, we have spent more than we've brought in. Yeah, no kidding we owe $31 trillion in debt. That's insane. Now, there's going to be people out there that are big proponents of Keynesian economics who are going to say, oh, it's fine. And, you know, maybe like that California governor a couple of years ago that referred to his state's $600 billion uh, pile of debt that the state itself had as a protective wall of debt, which, by the way, is not what walls are made out of and not how debt or walls work. But that's a conversation for a different time. At the end of the day, we have been spending more than we brought in for a really wicked long time. That's just how we operate, right, wrong, or indifferent. And now we've got a crisis because we've run up against our debt ceiling yet again. And we've got a new budget the president's trying to get passed, and Congress is 
getting back into that habit of brinksmanship saying, well, maybe we just won't approve the debt ceiling and we'll let ourselves potentially default on some of our financial obligations, which, by the way, would be an absolute economic and catastrophic disaster. You want to talk about something that OPEC would love to see happen? You want to talk about something that Russia and China would love to see happen? Let us default on some debts because we can't approve a budget. The interesting thing about this is, historically, the debt ceiling was kind of always automatically just sort of raised by default whenever they approved a budget. Um, This is why we didn't have government shutdowns prior to the 1980s. It wasn't until the 80s when uh, an act, I think it was the anti- um, Oh gosh, I'm I'm trying to remember it now. I'm have to look that up. I I've forgotten now. But basically, there was a a sort of obscure act that was found that was uh, reinterpreted um, to mean that perhaps the government should shut down in the event of uh, the the um. It was an 1800s act. Uh, the Anti Deficiency Act. Anti Deficiency Act. Um, It was the late 1800s. Anyways, basically, it was um, reconsidered in the 80s and determined that, in fact, it did not allow Congress to just automatically raise the debt ceiling as needed whenever they passed a budget, but that if they didn't approve a budget, um, it was a separate act to go and raise the debt ceiling effectively. And this was kind of redetermined by, I think, one of the attorney generals back in the early 80s, right after Reagan took office, which led us to our first government shutdown. Now, government shutdowns are basically when we, we the government, you know, finger quotes here, uh, shut down partial or significant services that the federal government provides until such time as a budget is approved and the Congress is authorized to spend uh, or to create debt to pay for those outlays. Now, what this means is that unlike a lot of other nations, unlike um, most other organizations, there's a bit of a different because the federal government can raise, de- you know, can generate debt to pay for things. Um, it just sort of kind of does that as long as it's got authorization to do so, and that authorization is the debt ceiling. Approving the amount we spend is what we do in the budget, and then there's a separate thing that we do, raising the debt ceiling, to allow Congress uh, or the Treasury more specifically to generate the debt to pay those bills. Now, why those two things aren't one and the same, um, and, and at the time it was sort of some political brinksmanship that got us there, and, and now it's become rather weaponized, uh, if you look at the history of government, government shutdowns didn't start happening until 1980, which was when the first one where the FTC was not funded in the budget for one day, requiring 1,600 employees to be furloughed. Uh, moving right along, there was another government shutdown that occurred in 1981 that lasted for a day. And then you had another shutdown in 84 and another shutdown in 86, all these lasting you know, a half day, a day, something like that. And those were all... And actually, the the eighty um, shutdown was under um, uh, Carter, not Reagan. It was, for, it was under Carter that they reevaluated that. Uh, but the point is, it wasn't until nineteen eighty that we really changed the rules on on issuing out debt and approving the budget and divorced them the way that we have. And since then, it's become a very weaponized process. So we had one shutdown under Carter. We had um, three shutdowns under Reagan. Even had a three-day-long shutdown under Bush Sr. in 1990. Um, Moving right along, we get to the Clinton administration. We had the uh, 1995 shutdown in November, followed by a very quick shutdown again that ran from 95 to 96. The first Clinton shutdown lasted for five days. The second Clinton shutdown lasted for 21 days, which was unprecedented at the time and was effectively a slap fight between Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton over the budget. And really the way I like to think of it was a slap fight between two old guys from the South who had a penchant for sleeping with women that weren't their wives. Um, But yeah, they they shut down the government for 21 days uh, through 95 and 96. And it resulted in one of the uh, biggest losses the Republicans had in the uh, midterm elections right after that. And effectively, you know, paved the way for Newt Gingrich to lose Speaker of the House and all those kind of things. Anyway, what's funny is it very rarely works out. You know, usually the the party that's seen as kind of pushing 
and being the hardliner usually takes the biggest hit in the following set of elections. So I think it's just comical that this is still something that's being weaponized as much as it is by uh, by the parties. I mean, it's just it's just insane. Anyway, moving right along, the next government shutdown we have doesn't occur until 2013, and that's uh, under the Obama administration. And that particular government shutdown uh, was 16 days long, not a short one. And um, but I may recall that was kind of a big hairy deal, and again there was a, a huge amount of political backlash from that. Then we get to the Trump administration, which is in and of itself had two government shutdowns: one in January 2018, and um, another one not that long after uh, in 2018, which resulted in a total of 38 days shutdown, which takes the cake as the longest government shutdown that we've had since this started occurring. Now, I'm not sure if we're going to hit government shutdown territory with this one, but I wouldn't be surprised if we did. I mean, at one point in time, this was a very rare thing that occurred, but now it seems like, with the exception of Bush Jr., every president who's been in office has had the government shut down on him over a budget fight. And in fact, they waited so long during the Obama shutdown in 2013 uh, to reopen the government that we got our credit downgraded. And this brinksmanship seems to be going further and further and further every time. And at some point, we're going to stupidly cross over that line. And as far as I can tell, for just no good reason at all. But that's the history of government shutdowns in a nutshell and how we got here. Now, that being said, you may say, okay, so we've got $31 trillion in debt. What's the breakdown on that? And I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine at the local cigar shop, uh, and he made a comment that, that I uh, had to correct. He goes, well, you know, he has $31 trillion in debt. I said, yeah, it's pretty bad. He goes, well, uh, you know what's going to happen. China's going to roll up here, and they're going to call all of our debt, and we're not going to have the money for it, and then we're going to have to give them like half the country. And I said, that's, uh, that's not how any of that works. It's not, not even close. Oh, yeah, it is. They hold all of our debt. No, they don't. So if you're curious, you want to go look into it yourself, by all means, hit the uh, Government Accountability Office, hit the U.S. Treasury. Uh, they put out a quarterly report showing you exactly who all has all of our debt at any given time. And um, I'm actually going to breeze through this at a high level just because I think it's interesting. I think a lot of people have a misconception about how our debt situation looks. So um, I'm going to shortcut it and just give you guys some, some facts here in case you want them. So $31.4 trillion, metric shit ton of debt. Who holds it? Well, you might be surprised. Who has the single largest chunk of the debt individually? Any guesses? That'd be the federal government. Yes, the federal government buys a lot of its own debt because the world doesn't make any sense. Here's the deal. If you look at the federal government agencies, um, overall, they hold $12.25 trillion of our debt. That's right. Basically, a third of the debt that the United States owes is literally to itself. Um, the Social Security Administration is the top dog on that. The Social Security Administration actually owns $2.71 trillion in that debt. The Department of Defense Military Retirement Fund comes in second with $1.36 trillion, and then the Civil Services Retirement Fund has $977 billion of that twelve and a quarter trillion debt. Now, you're probably wondering how how the hell is that even possible? Except for those of you that are you know really educated on the economics of it, in which case you're probably bored by this. But for those of you that don't know, let me walk you through it. The government debt is not like some sort of a Amex card that is carved out of a raw diamond that the government swipes every time it needs to borrow money. It's not how it works. Whenever the government needs to borrow money, they issue out effectively bonds in the form of T-bills, tips, uh, treasury notes, treasury bonds, savings bonds, things like that. And effectively what that is, is a paper that they sell for whatever the dollar amount denominated on it is with a interest rate for whatever period of time that's for. It may be a short-term 
uh, paper that only lasts a couple of days or weeks or a month or a year, or it may be a longer term that lasts, you know, five years, 10 years, 30 years, whatever. Um, during that time at routine intervals, it has to pay out interest on that. And, you know, once it matures, they pay back the, um, the amount on the face of the bill, just like most other bonds. Now, you can't just call that debt. You can't roll up to the Fed and say, okay, I've got this $10,000 treasury bill here. Um, pay me my money. Uh, they're not going to do that. The best you can do is in some cases, you can sell these on the secondary market. So for instance, if you need to liquidate that, you can talk to your broker and basically get this T-bill or T-bond or whatever sold to somebody else. Some of these, these instruments can't be sold on the secondary markets, but I'm not going to get into all that. The point is, the Social Security Administration, for example, um, brings in more money today than it actually spends on administering Social Security to our elderly citizens. And so when they bring in more money, they don't just want to stick it under the mattress, they want to do something with it. And so the Director of Social Security Administration directs them to um, invest that money in something that will yield some sort of a return. And what they buy, ironically enough, are treasury bonds, treasury bills, treasury notes. They buy U.S. debt. And the reason is, is because the United States is going to pay its debts. Theoretically, we've never defaulted on a note. We're the strongest economy. We're the superpower of the world. And we have the full faith and credit of the United States backing up um, what we've got here. And so it's considered a very safe investment. So yeah, the Social Security Administration, the Department of Military Retirement, Civil Service Retirement, they all buy a fuck of a lot of our government's debt to the tune of about $12 trillion of this debt is all stuff that our own government is buying to make interest money for their individual departments until some future time when this will mature and come back into them, which is kind of crazy that the way that economics and the government work allows this sort of thing to happen, but there you go. That's where a lot of our debt is held. Okay, but what about China? What about all the foreign governments that own all of our debt? Okay, they can't call it whenever they want, but we still owe them, right? Well, yeah, we do. We owe about, out of $31 trillion of debt that we have, $7 trillion of it is with foreign governments, which comparatively is not all that much. I mean, seven trillion is a, a lot of money. I'll, there's no two ways around that. But let's be honest, the Social Security Administration <laughs> controls more of our debt than any single country does. Think about that. In fact, the Department of Defense Military Retirement Plan owns more of our debt than any foreign country does. Yeah, by a lot. Incidentally, so let's break down the foreign governments. So, 7.4 trillion is owned by foreign governments of our debt. Now, I'm going to ask the question, and because I'm asking, you know, it's not going to be the answer you're expecting. Who do you think holds the majority of our debt from a foreign perspective? Who's our biggest debt holder overseas? If you're thinking China, you're thinking incorrectly. Believe it or not, the largest holder of U.S. debt overseas is Japan. Japan holds $1.08 trillion of our $31 trillion debt as of the end of last quarter, beginning of this quarter. And so, Japan's the evil empire we have to worry about coming after us for money. And they only have one uh, 30th of that money that we owe. So, you know, I, I think we'll be fine. Um, now, China is in the top 10 list. China is actually at number two. However, they have a lot less of it. China only holds about $870 billion of our debt. And believe it or not, our former royal overlords, the United Kingdom, comes in at number three with $645 billion of our debt. That's right. We owe the crown $645 billion. So, in case you thought we had cut all of our ties in the Revolutionary War, no. The UK has bought $600 billion of our debt, and evidently we owe them. So, live with that. Uh, Belgium surprisingly holds $332 billion. Luxembourg, $312 billion. The Cayman Islands holds $283 billion. Switzerland, $266 billion. Ireland, $250 billion. Canada, $229 billion. And Brazil, 
$225 billion. Now, a couple of these names I think are kind of interesting to look at. So uh, the Cayman Islands, Luxembourg, Belgium, Switzerland, uh, what do they all have in common? Major, uh, major closed banking systems uh, of the world, right? And why do they have a lot of our debt? Because they're holding a lot of money for people, and our debt is considered a very safe thing because you're always going to get paid back on it, again, assuming we don't default. But as it currently stands, the dollar is the reserve currency, and everybody pretty much trusts that you can put your money with the federal government and it'll be A-OK, which is why you have all these major banking centers like Cayman, Switzerland, uh, Luxembourg, holding, you know, those those banking countries by themselves hold nearly a you know a trillion dollars or over a trillion dollars of our debt. In fact, they uh, hold way more, way more than China or Japan even. But like I said, who would have thought Japan holds the majority of our foreign debt, and that's only a thirtieth of our overall debt. So we've covered like. $20 trillion of where our debt's at. How about the rest of it? Where's that at? Well, $2.84 trillion of it is tied up in mutual funds. That's right. Mutual funds like your 401k, your retirement, all of that. Uh, mutual funds love to buy treasury uh, debt instruments because, again, it's considered extremely, extremely safe. You're always going to get your receipt back in on it. It's always going to mature and be just fine. The U.S. government's not going anywhere. And so, yeah, a lot of retirement funds invest heavily in our, our debt instruments from the federal level. So, yeah, just a little under $3 trillion is held by various retirement funds on the secondary market. Depository institutions, i.e. banks, banks tend to hold a lot of money, and they want to make money on what they uh, are holding for you and I, the customer. So they tend to invest in a lot of things in the market. And one of the safest things they can invest in, you guessed it, treasury debt. So they own the bank's of America, 1.8 trillion of our debt. Funnily enough, the individual states and local governments, counties, municipal governments, and all that in the United States also own about one and a half trillion dollars of our federal debt. Because again, if they have a surplus, they want to put that money somewhere. The assumption is it's quite safe buying federal debt. Uh, pension funds from Unions and all that, that racks up about $1.1 trillion of debt. Insurance companies um, hold this for the same reason as everybody else. It's considered safe. They're about $368 billion. Uh, U.S. savings bonds make up $160 billion itself. And then you got about another $2 trillion just, you know, individual uh, uh, individuals who have bought this, people like you and me that drop 1000 or $10,000 directly, you know, through Treasury Direct and buy these debt instruments or debt instruments ourself. So the question of who owes that debt, who does the federal government owe? Well, two out of three of the people it owes is you and me, the taxpayer. We're the ones who in some way, shape, or form own that debt. If you were to dig around in your retirement account, if you were to talk to your bank about what they invest in with your money, if you were to... Uh, uh, be in a retirement with the military or the civil service where you get any kind of a pension, guess what? Really good chance you own a piece of that debt somewhere, and and that's helping fund one of those things. So, so yeah, that's the bottom line. There is no China showing up on our doorstep and demanding to repossess half the company country because we can't pay our debts. It's not how it works. Um, honestly, it's, uh, you know... Really, we should be the ones rolling up there, you and me, and just saying, hey, um, let's come do. But a lot of these are bonds, so you can't just do that. You can't just cash it in. So it's a very complicated thing that does not work the way that most people assume that it does. Um, and ultimately, that's probably a good thing. Also, because these bonds are issued at one point in time and have payouts or maturities that are sometimes decades later, that's why you see our debt, our, our interest that we pay every year, uh, on a federal level, oscillate pretty significantly. Some years it can be as, as little as $250 billion, Other years it's as high as, as $500 billion, And some you know projections put it out as cresting over a trillion if we keep going the way we're going. And the reason is, is because, yeah, these things have interest rates they pay every year. Some of them mature on different stages. And that's just something that's going to going to be a thing that kind of moves around quite a bit. It's not like a credit card where there's a flat fee of interest that we pay people. It's just way, way bigger and more complicated than, than all of that. So 
that's the situation with our debt. That's that's what we've got there. And if you want to get down to it, uh, while we're talking about the debt, let's talk about this this budget that's shutting down the government right now. You know, what's that look like? And, and, and this is where things start to get a little bit sort of galling to me. So I'm going to pull this up here. So the theoretical proposed budget that's causing this latest weaponized fiscal cliff um, is a budget calling for roughly $5.8 trillion in outlays. So that's what President Biden wants to spend in fiscal year 2023, $5.8 trillion, which is uh, give or take $5.8 trillion more than anybody listening to this podcast possesses. That is a wicked lot of money. Now, of course, outlays are one side of it. What about the receipts? How much are we actually making? Well, the current receipts the United States anticipates making in fiscal year 2023 is $4.6 which means a deficit of $1.2 And I know what you're thinking. Boy, that's a really massive deficit. And you'd be right. That is a really big gap. So where does the United States plan on spending all this money that they need this trillion-dollar deficit? Well, Obviously, welfare programs account for a significant portion, $3.7 trillion. Now, if you break that down slightly more granularly, Social Security is $1.3 trillion. Uh, Medicare and Medicaid is going to account for $1.4 trillion. Veterans benefits are $0.2 trillion or $200 billion. And income security, which is your basically where they've lumped everything they've done for COVID response and everything they've done for uh, – you know, employment, but it's just all a lot of your other welfare programs. That goes into um, income security, and that comes out at about $800 billion. It's not small. Now, that's all your mandatory spending. That's all the stuff that you need laws to actually change how this stuff works. So the biggest piece of the pie is obviously Medicaid and Medicare, 1.4. The second largest piece of the pie is Social Security at 1.3. The next largest thing that we spend money on would be defense. Hate to say it, but yeah, we spend uh, about $850 billion on defense. It's the third largest item on our budget. Now, I'm a prior Air Force guy. I love me some defense. I like my shiny airplanes. I like our good, you know, naval situation. I want a nice, powerful army, all the things. But we do spend a, a lot on defense. Now, we don't spend nearly as much on defense as we do on Social Security and on, on health care. And quite frankly, we're spending nearly as much on every other type of welfare there is. So we've got to kind of think through that. But the bottom line is there's probably some room to trim it. And listen, anybody in here that's been in the military that's listening to this show right now, if you've been in the military, you've seen just how frivolous squadrons and battalions and and all the things can be with, with our money. We all know the horror stories about coming up on the end of the year and people buying 30 pairs of boots because the budget hasn't been spent yet. And if they don't spend it, they're not going to get that in the budget for next year. So we have to go out and buy all the things and just hope that we need them later on. I mean, listen, there is lots of fat to be trimmed without actually materially affecting the way that our military is able to equip itself. The problem is you have to change the fundamental way that people think about the budget and the way that they treat the budget. Um, And the federal government is institutionally not thinking about a budget the way that a business would think about a budget or an individual would. And yes, some of the rules are different, you know, but there does need to be a fundamental institutional change in how that's done. At any rate, that gets you through almost everything except our interest, which we anticipate to be about $400 billion in interest paid out. Net interest, mind you. Keep in mind the United States actually buys debt instruments from other countries, and then we get paid interest on those debt instruments, and we use that to net out our interest payment to other countries on their debt instruments. So the net on that is we owe about $400 billion in, in interest payments to all of the various creditors, uh, which are predominantly the American people, that we owe money to every year. So that's the, uh, the expenses that El Presidente Biden wants to have. What are our receipts? Well, so our receipts, $4.6 trillion, and those receipts come primarily at a high level from Social Security, which is all your payroll taxes, that kind of thing. That comes out to $1.5 trillion. 
Uh, individual income tax is the single largest contributor to the federal coffers, and that comes in at $2.3 trillion, followed by a fairly distant third, and that's corporate taxes, which account to only $500 million, or excuse me, $500 billion in corporate taxes. So yeah, corporate taxation is really, really a very, very, you know, relatively small part of the um, the equation here. Um, then you got excise taxes, estate taxes, things like that, all those kind of little piddly fees and everything. Uh, that comes out to about $300 billion a year, which, like I said, leaves us with a $1.2 trillion deficit. Here's the thing. That's a big deficit, and there's no getting around that. And the problem is this isn't a new situation. Like I said before, in the past 54 years, 49 of them, we've been running a deficit of one variety or another. And let's be clear, this is – what pisses me off about this is this is not a Republican or a Democrat problem. This is a problem with the entire government. All the people in Congress are just as bad at this as everyone else. And yes, I love how the Republicans get up there and they talk about how they're the party that's responsible financially and fiscally and we're there to, to do all the things to – to keep the government from being outrageous in their spending. But the problem is they spend within a trillion dollars, they spend just as much as the Democrats have over the past 40 years. Over the past 40 years, they're literally neck and neck with who spends the same amount of money. I mean, if you go look, and I mean, like I said, this is all GAO and uh, it, it's all out there. There's none of this is, you know, it's just there. You have to do the research. But at the end of the day, they are no better. And this is what bothers me. What they say is that we need to rein in government spending. And we absolutely need to rein in government spending. There's zero doubt about that. I 100% agree. I am as fiscally conservative as it gets. But you guys don't do it. You talk about it. You'll take us to the brink of an economic disaster about it, but at the end of the day, it's more of a political pissing contest over what's effectively pennies. The Republicans right now are squabbling over $150 billion in the budget. $150 billion? We have a $1.2 trillion deficit, and you're going to shut down the show over $150 billion? Who cares? That is literally peanut. That doesn't even take us out of the red. That doesn't even get us close to being out of the red. And this is what we're going to throw down over? This is what we're going to shut down all, all government operations over? Is this this amount of money that's not even going to really move the needle in any meaningful way? Give me a break, guys. Come on. Do your jobs. You're out there to be the fiscally responsible party. Start taking it seriously. And I love the fact... Love the fact that, um, oh, God, who is the speaker, the new speaker of the House? I have his name memorized yet. I probably should. Uh, but, you know, he makes the, um, the comment, we're, you know, our goal is to go in there and cut $150 billion out of this budget. We're going to gut this budget. $150 billion out of a uh, nearly $6 trillion budget? That is not gutting it. That is not gutting it. That is not scratching a certain – that is not even putting a noticeable – dent in it, okay? Gutting it would be if you came back and said, hey, you know, we're coming in here, we have a $1.2 trillion deficit, uh, we're going to cut about $2.5 trillion of spending out of this budget. That would be gutting it. And $150 billion, they ain't fucking gutting it, okay? Nobody's even going to know. Why the Democrats, frankly, even care about a number that and, and I don't believe I'm saying this, but a number that's that small, relatively speaking, is one thing. And why the government, why the Republicans even give a shit to fight about that is, and don't give me the, it's the principle of the matter. I'm sorry. Th that's just too small of an amount of money in, in respect to be something to stand on principle. You want to stand on principle? Actually do the job and cut some real money out of the budget. And... And if we're just being entirely honest here, you know, this whole thing of, of uh, you know, the budget, keep in mind, there are two ways to do this. And it's so funny how both parties act like it's absolutely impossible to do both of these things. But the truth of the matter is, you can cut the spending, and we should. You can raise taxes, generate more revenue, 
And maybe there are some things we need to look at with that. I don't really want to pay more in taxes, but I will say this. Our tax rate in this country is a lot lower than it used to be. And and don't crucify me in, in the comments here. Like, I'm not saying that we need to do this. I'm not saying I want to do this. I'm just saying, historically, we have the best tax rates in this country's history since we had an income tax effect. I mean, for quite a while. I mean, if you go back to like the 1920s, it might have been lower. Um, but anytime since, you know, let's call it the 30s, 40s to present, we've got the best tax rate. In the 1950s, the top end tax rate, and brace yourselves, the top end tax rate in the 1950s, whatever number you think it is, you're wrong. The top end tax rate was 91% in the 1950s. 91%. Now, it was a progressive tax scheme just like it is now, and to hit 91%, you had to bring in 3 million, 3.75 million a year uh, or more to hit that, but that was the top end. 91% taxes. Can you imagine? Can you imagine anybody even having the goal? Right now, we are arguing over 385 to 40% tax rate at the absolute top end, and people are losing their fucking minds over it. Can you imagine living in a world where the top tax rate was 91%? Can, can you believe that that was the tax rate in the United States? If you told me that was the tax rate in the fucking Soviet Union, I might believe you. But to hear that that was the tax rate in the United States of America? I mean, it makes me a little less inclined to throw a fit about maybe my tax rate going from 38 to 40 or something like that. Like, okay, 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 fine, I'll entertain the conversation. Uh, that is wild. And here's another fun fact for all the bleeding hearts out there. The current tax rate, you would talk about, you know, oh, but the lower class and the middle class are getting uh, raked over the coals with taxes. You know, I just did the bit about how the rich aren't paying nearly as much as they used to in taxes. Okay, so now I'm going to do the other side. Don't come at me and talk about how the lower class, you know, the, the middle and lower class are getting hit with the tax just a bit. Because guess what? The tax rate today, wicked lower. It is half what it was in the 1950s. In the 1950s, the bottom tax rate the bottom, the floor of it was 20%. It's 10% today. So the tax rate today for the least fortunate among us is half what it was in the 1950s. People just paid a shit ton more taxes back then. And I know most of us listening to this podcast probably were not of tax paying age back then. Um, and if you were, think back to what a nightmare that was and, uh, you know, I'm glad you guys made it. But the reality of it is you're talking about a lot of taxes. We don't pay that much compared to what we paid historically as a country. And keep in mind, it's not like these tax, tax rates uh, were super low for just ever. The first major tax cuts were Reagan, and Reagan dropped the taxes down 20%. He dropped them down to, I think it was... um. He either dropped them from 90 to 70 or he dropped them from 70 to 50%. I'd have to go look it up again to remember. But the point is, he, uh, he really cut the taxes down in a very significant way. And I mean, my Lord, can you imagine having a tax rate where you can actually legitimately say, yeah, I'm going to drop the tax rate by 20%? That's insane. So my point is, yeah, there probably is some room if we're going to – if, if – we as a country would get serious about paying off our debt, and if we as a country would get serious about stopping the spending nature of our Congress, if we would actually get serious about that, then sure, I'd pay a little bit more in taxes to help get that job done. But the problem is, I don't trust our Congress to do that. I don't trust our presidents to do that. Um, and if you look back historically at this, that's just been the case, right? I mean, we talked about this a few minutes ago. If you look back at it, Reagan started out with a little under a uh, trillion dollars in 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 debt, and by the time he got out of office, he was sitting at two point eight trillion of debt. 
he increased military spending, he had massive tax cuts, and hey, I like both of those things conceptually, but from a financial standpoint, just didn't do us any favors. You get to Bush Sr., and he started off with uh, you know, Reagan's $2.8 trillion of debt, and by the time Bush left office, he had racked it up to $4.4 trillion. Then you get to Clinton, and Clinton had $4.7 trillion uh, when he started, and he took it all the way up to $5.8 trillion, which, granted, in eight years was a pretty responsible amount of growth considering what his predecessors had done, but also four years of, of uh, Clinton's administration was the last time we had a surplus, which is wild to me. Why, why is it? Why is it? that the last two presidents to give us an actual surplus are the Democrats. Republicans, what the fuck are you doing? How is it the Democrats are the last ones to give us a surplus when y'all are supposed to be the party of being responsible? I need you to do better, okay? That's the bottom line. You spend so much time fighting about the stuff that we just don't give a fuck about, and the thing that you really need to do, which is be responsible with our finances and our taxpayer dollars, you just can't seem to be bothered. I need you to do better, okay? Then we get to President Bush Jr., W. Now, and listen, there's excuses for all this, right? We had the war on terror. We had two recessions happen during uh, Bush's administration. When he had the bank bailouts that he started. He did tax cuts. And by the way, again, like his dad, he did – well, his dad actually didn't do tax – dad raised taxes. But Bush, uh, Bush did tax cuts. He had to deal with recessions, two of them. He had bank bailouts, all that, and he had a war on terror. So he started off with $6 trillion in debt, and by the time Bush got out of office after his eight-year run, we were just under $12 trillion in debt. That's a lot. That's an increase of $6.1 trillion in debt, which is wild. Think about that. The federal debt literally doubled all the debt we had accumulated from, from you know, uh, which, by the way, fun fact, the last time that we were a debt-free nation was actually under um, President Andrew Jackson, and that was 1835 to 1837 or 38, and that was the last time we did not have debt in this country. So, basically, nearly 200 years we've had some level of debt, and in one eight-year span we managed to get double that. We doubled 200 years of work, very nearly. Um Think about that for a second. Then you get to President Obama, and he wasn't going to be outdone. Bush might have doubled our debt, but by God, President Obama was, was going to give it the good old college try. He starts off with just around $12 trillion of debt, and by the time he leaves office, he's added a good $8.3 trillion and gotten us to $20 trillion in debt. And yes, Great Recession, continuation of Bush's economic stimulus packages, plus he continued a lot of his tax cuts, blah, 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 don't really care. The point is, we racked up another fuck ton of debt in that time. And I honestly didn't think it could get much worse than that. I mean, that is racking up basically a trillion dollars a year in debt under President Obama. That is a mind-blowing amount of debt. And then you get President Trump. President Trump took us from $20 trillion of debt to $29.6 trillion of debt, which means he added $8.2 trillion. He added almost, well, I mean, within plus or minus $100 billion, which at this point is basically a fucking rounding error. Uh, he added all of that in the span of four years. He added almost the same amount of debt as Obama in half the time. Honestly, I'm almost impressed. I'm almost impressed he could spend that much money. And I say Trump. It's obviously not just him. It's Congress. It's the entire federal government that is wildly out of control. But at the end of the day, you're talking about averaging very nearly $2 trillion a year in overages. And yes, 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 the COVID recession. Do you notice how every administration's got some sort of a a macroeconomic excuse for why we need to spend fuck tons of money. Um, yes, there was a COVID recession, but also $2 trillion a year. $2 trillion a year in deficit. That is a number that my lizard brain just can't even wrap its head around. And now we've got President Biden. 
So President Biden inherits $29.6 trillion, and here we are at 2023, and we are sitting at $31.4 trillion. He's added very nearly $2 trillion in debt. So what's this mean? It means that he's at the very least on the same plan as Obama. Now, one way of saying that is, oh, he's spending half as much money as President Trump. Cool. He's still spending too goddamn much money. I think we can all agree. A trillion dollar deficit per year is not what this country needs, okay? Yes, the federal debt is not as scary as it sounds because it's not like foreign countries own everything and they're going to come and repossess fucking Alaska tomorrow. But we don't need to have this much debt. We don't need to be issuing out this many debt instruments to anybody. And quite frankly, we need to stop spending money the way that we do as a nation. And clearly, by looking at the data, it's everybody who we put in office that seems to just not be able to not run up the tab a little bit. So here's my challenge. Democrats, stop stop spending so much money. Republicans, stop spending so much money, okay? That's the bottom line. That's what you guys need to do. Because quite frankly, it's gotten to the point where it is absolutely ridiculous. Actually, ridiculous was about $20 trillion ago. Okay? That's where we're at. And at the end of the day, if you guys fuck around and cause a global economic crisis over $100 billion, which, when you're talking about these kind of numbers, is completely pointless, if you cause that kind of economic crisis that benefits our nation's enemies, that benefits the the oil cartels that hurt the U.S. oil industry, and we have to pay that price as well? You should be run out of office. There we go. That's all i got time for tonight. And I'm sure we all feel better after my little rant, right? I sure do. I didn't even get a sip of my coffee this whole show. Anyway... That's what I got for tonight. I will be back next week, and we'll do this again. Uh, But until then, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that I am backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.